I'm Dilara Salahra, and this is the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, your source of knowledge and inspiration for sustainable habits. Consumption. On the one hand, it is a pleasant act of acquiring a new thing. On the other hand, it is an act of adding to things already piling up at home and the negative environmental impact such as carbon emissions and pollution due to production and waste of material things. On average, every $2,000 spent lead to one ton of carbon emissions. This is an important share of 10 to 15 tons of annual carbon emissions per person in the developed countries. As multiple psychological studies show, consumption and possession of material things are profoundly related to human psychology. Human relations would start, start as early as being two years old. Later, possessions become extensions of the self and part of people's identity. Furthermore, when making a purchase, our brain releases endorphins and dopamine, which is felt as an instant reward and motivates people for more purchasing. The marketing is particularly good at exacerbating this psychological aspect and make us want more things. The problem with overconsumption has become so bad that we are literally crossing multiple planetary boundaries with catastrophic consequences for the planet and humanity. A solution that today's guest proposes is sustainable minimalist lifestyle. Stephanie Severi is an active advocate of sustainable minimalism. She lives in Boston with her two daughters, dog, bees, and husband. She has been hosting a podcast about sustainable minimalism for the past five years. She has a blog and a book on the same topic. She maintains an active community in Facebook and Instagram with thousands of followers. So let's uncover with Stephanie how to live minimalist lifestyle and be happy or even happier. Stephanie, a warm welcome to the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, and let us start with the basics. What does sustainable minimalism mean? And where does the term come from? So sustainable minimalism is basically a lifestyle that focuses on less less for the planet. So buying less stuff, needing less stuff, consuming less stuff, wanting less stuff, because when we buy less, when we consume less, when we slow down and when we're happy for what we have, that's a powerful way of being eco-friendly. Our consumption habits, particularly here in America where I live, they're completely out of control. Many of us don't realize that the items that we purchase without thought and without intention on Amazon or in our big box store, all those items require non-renewable resources from our earth to produce. And that's to say nothing about the shipping across the world that um, increases the amount of carbon in our shared atmosphere. That's also to say nothing about the afterlife of these items. What are we doing with these items once they're no longer glamorous and new and great and we throw them in the landfill? And so the, the term sustainable minimalism 
came shortly after I became a mother. I was stressed out, overwhelmed, didn't have time. I was sick of putting away everything, organizing, cleaning, all the stuff. And so I thought to myself, I should embrace minimalism. But minimalism, as it's commonly touted today by the minimalist influencers out there, talk about getting rid of your stuff, but they don't really say what to do with all the stuff. And if minimalism was throwing my perfectly decent possessions in the trash can and sending them off to the landfill, then minimalism wasn't for me. I was really looking for a minimalist to talk to me about sustainable minimalism, how to live with less, how to want less as a means of helping the planet. And nobody was talking about it five years ago. So I thought to myself, Let's start a podcast. How hard can it be? <laughs> it's really hard, by the way. I didn't know that at the time, though. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, actually one of the questions I, I had for you. So you started in 2017 or 2018, and uh, like you sustained it actually for five, six years. And uh, I was wondering, like, it must have been pretty lonely, you know, sometimes uh, and thinking, like, oh, is there anybody who is listening to me? Like, uh, uh, was it how you felt? Uh, uh, what was your experience? My experience was largely, you know, I have these feelings. I have this angst. I have this eco-anxiety inside me. So I'm going to put out into the world via a podcast my best thoughts, my tips, my struggles. I'm going to put it all out into the world. And if nobody listens, if nobody cares, then it's still just a passion project for me. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it as a hobby. Um, I never expected it to grow and become what it is today. I must say I was pleasantly surprised when my podcast, Sustainable Minimalists, um, grew, got traction fairly quickly. And the fact that people are listening um, keeps me going, right? I, I feel like I found a community through my podcast of like-minded people, people like me who are looking at our consumptive, I would say over-consumptive society and saying, this isn't working. And so that makes me feel really hopeful for our future. And how do you feel the community that you have is the community of already like-minded people who are looking more for the support uh, of, uh, of of the uh, everyday actions, or you also see people who get converted on their way? It's a mix. It's definitely a mix. I have some people who come for the minimalism content. They want to declutter. They find my show and they stick around because they learn an awful lot about sustainability or the opposite is true. People come for the sustainability and learn about minimalism. It's a real mixed bag over on the Sustainable Minimalist podcast. You mentioned this word declutter. That's what I noticed uh, on your website. This is the most often uh, mentioned word on your website. So what does uh, you put behind it? So decluttering, in my opinion, is a much better use of time than organizing right? We should declutter our stuff before we organize our stuff. And that's because the majority of us have accumulated an awful lot of possessions that do not fit our season of life right now, in wherever we are. Our seasons of life change, our 
possession needs change. And so instead of keeping all of it around and wasting our precious free time organizing it, let's pass it on. What makes sustainable minimalism different from just all the other types of minimalism out there is that the decluttering journey is not about having a clean house or a tidy home or a Instagram worthy living room. Decluttering is really important in sustainable minimalism because it's hard and it forces you to look inward. It forces you, there's something very uncomfortable about sitting with or looming over a pile of possessions that are in perfectly decent working order that you spent your hard earned money on that you never should have allowed entrance into your home to begin with. That's a really terrible feeling that sits in your gut. And I believe that it's important to have that feeling because it does teach you about needs versus wants, and it does inform your purchasing decisions in the future. And so what are the main principles of decluttering? So where do you start? Well, I always suggest you start in a non-emotional space. So if your grandmother just died and you have boxes and boxes of her items sitting in your basement, don't start there because that's a very emotional space. Go somewhere where you're not going to get tripped up by your emotions. Go to your bathroom. Maybe you tackle your beauty products. Or maybe you go to your linen closet and you look at all the extra sheets and towels you have that just sit at the bottom of the pile and never get used. Start there. Um, those are both small areas. You could probably declutter it in an hour or less. And every time you head into your bathroom or linen closet, you're going to feel <laughs> peaceful. It's a, it, when, when a space is tidy and clean, um, it does affect your mood. And so I believe that if you start small and you are able to reap the benefits of your efforts, it'll snowball. Your efforts will snowball. You'll have the internal motivation to tackle the next space. And how do you answer the question, oh, I actually may need it? So that's, a yeah, I mean, some things you might end up needing down the line. And if so, you should definitely keep them. But if the answer is, I'm definitely never going to use this. I purchased this hand lotion or this body wash was a gift and I don't like it. You do not need to keep it. You can pass it along. Um, just for those examples in particular, women's shelters, homeless shelters, those are great places to pass on used uh, beauty supplies, they'll take them. Um, and then for the stuff that you're not sure if you'll need again, you're just not sure, you haven't used it in a while, you might need it. I always suggest the idea of a quarantine box, which is nothing fancy. It's a box. You put the item in question in the box, and then you take the box and you put it out of sight. So for me and my house, the quarantine box is in the basement because I'm not going to see the items. And so you, you put the item in the box, you put the box out of sight, and then you start a timer, right? You put a six-month timer on it. If you need the item that's in the box in six months, you take it out, you use it, and then you put the item back where it belongs. But if six months go by and you do not use the item, it's time to pass it along. Because if you're not going to use it in six months, you're not going to likely use it in the next six months or the six months after that. Yeah, I guess not many things uh, going back. Mm -hmm. 
nothing has ever gone back in my house from the quarantine box. I'll be completely honest. <laughs> and are your kids and husband on board? No. <laughs> um, my kids are on board with the, like, I'm trying to teach them how, you know, if they have toys and clothes, they have favorites. Let's, let's start by rank choice ordering our things. Um, and let's really allow the favorite toys, the favorite clothes to be front and center. I think that's an important skill that children aren't always taught, right? Like, just because we have all this stuff, we don't love on all this stuff equally. We don't use all of this stuff in equal amounts time-wise. And so we're working on curating our their items so that they have their favorites um, and letting go of the stuff that they never use, never play with. It's an ongoing process and it's certainly not easy. Uh, my husband is definitely on board. He is um, definitely on board with the sustainability side of sustainable minimalism. He definitely doesn't like getting rid of items that have what he calls potential. He hates throwing things in the trash. So do I. And so for us, with my husband, it's about upcycling, reusing, repurposing items, and then getting rid of them, recycling them, passing them on as an absolute last resort. So we have a commonality in the reusing, repurposing, upcycling aspect of sustainable minimalism. Yes, and uh, it's interesting you touched uh, upon this. We have to declutter, but declutter meaning move it out of our house. And there are different ways how you can get rid of stuff. What are the preferences, like by sustainability ranking, how you get rid of the stuff that you don't need anymore? Well, trash can is absolute last resort. First resort would be asking somebody you know within your community whether they want your item. So kids clothes would be a great example. Do you have a friend or uh, acquaintance in your neighborhood and your community and your town that could use your use bags of your outgrown kids clothes? Um, if so, that would be like the best choice. Somebody that you know in your community. If nobody fits the bill, nobody wants your kids clothes or whatever the item is, next would be somebody you don't know in your community. Uh, this could be an organization, a nonprofit, a church, a nursing home, an animal shelter, you name it. Um, and that you have to always, first of all, Google's your friend and you always have to call first. We never just drop stuff off and make our stuff somebody else's problem. You have to ask and we have to be respectful and um, say, okay, if an organization doesn't want our stuff. <laughs> Next up, after you've checked that box, is nonprofits or organizations that are not in your community. And we tend to want to, we do want to avoid shipping stuff all around the globe, um, because again, that's not a sustainable practice. But if that's all that's available for your trombone, let's say, that you haven't played in a while or whatever the item is, then a nonprofit that's not within your community. Um, I always suggest too, selling stuff. Selling stuff in good conditions in 2023 is not hard. Facebook Marketplace is my favorite. Just list it and see what happens. Maybe you get a bite, maybe you don't. 
it's not a money maker. Like you can't go into selling with the assumption that you're going to make back what you paid or even close to what you paid. Cause that's not the case. But in some instances, if you have some great stuff, um, selling is a great option. Uh, recycling items that can be recycled and make sure you're recycling them correctly. Like we're never going to stick an appliance in the recycle bin. That's a big no, no batteries in the trash. That's a big no, no. If your community has recycling events, we're taking advantage of those. And then I say all that to say, finally, that there are indeed items in many homes that are indeed trash. So we don't want to donate or give away items that are in less than pristine condition. Uh, Organizations do not want our junk. And so if we have stuff that is not donatable and we have no upcycling or repurposing or um, options for these items, then they are indeed trash. But trash is always the last resort. And I think you you, you already uh, explicitly mentioned this, that first is actually less consumption uh, to start with. So And the, all the uh, recycling, donation, etc., that comes uh, as a second uh, step. Because uh, uh, when you actually mentioned the uh, sale or resale uh, secondhand, it can uh, give a wrong impression. So I buy first and then I resell. And this gives a kind of good feeling of uh, doing the right thing. But uh, no. So you first you start with the buying less, buying better that will uh, last longer. And only after you don't really need it, then you can resell it or donate uh, or finally recycle. Yes, that's exactly right. You said that much better than I did. <laughs> I would just say, you know, the 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 donating process, the the dropping items off all over town, the shipping stuff to worthy recipients, that is a lot of work. Uh, I always suggest to people who are decluttering, like the the job doesn't the job is not done once your home is decluttered. The job is only done once all your perfectly decent stuff is in the hands of worthy recipients. That's the responsible part of responsible decluttering. And it's time consuming. It's emotionally taxing. In some cases, it's physically taxing, lugging items to all all these different places. And so the difficulty of the task in many cases, in my case, and in a lot of my listeners' cases, the the difficulty of the task is what in later informs future p- purchasing decisions right so we don't ever want to go through this again so next time we're at the store or next time we think about buying something there's a voice in the back of my head that says up oh, today's it item so the item i'm looking at right now is going to be clutter in who knows 4 months 6 months 2 years and then I'm going to have to, as a sustainable minimalist, I'm going to have to responsibly declutter this. Is it worth it? And that's where the change happens. Is it what some uh, most people connect to, that they have to declutter later? And so it affects their uh, purchase habits right now? Absolutely. Interesting. Because... Personally, I would rather think, okay, uh, do I need it? How many resources were spent on uh, doing it? Like, I wouldn't 
think about <laughs> what I will do later with the decluttering uh, because, okay, I have to do it. I would do it. But it's interesting. Uh, there, there are different uh, elements that people can connect to. If you would like to convince someone to adopt the, this minimalist lifestyle, so what would you say? Because it's quite a bit of a burden, actually. Well, I mean, if the environmental problems that we're all facing isn't a wake-up call for the skeptic that you're, you know, mentioning here, I would say, okay, let's look at your look at the personal benefits, right? Like, so if the environmental side isn't isn't doing it for you, let's talk about the personal benefits. Um, number one <laughs> is a home that supports you, that is that you want to go home to, that feels airy and welcoming, that doesn't stress you out every time you walk in the door because you've got piles of messes all over the place. That's number one. Uh, minimalist homes have been shown to reduce stress and anxiety. Minimal people who adopt minimalism come constantly attest to the fact that they are feel it no longer feeling financial pressure financial pressure living beyond your means is of course associated with again excessive stress um, minimalist homes have found to reduce family tension so if you're constantly bickering it with your kids because they're not picking up their bazillion toys or you're bickering with your partner because um, there's, there's, there's stuffs everywhere. Um, a minimalist home offers countless personal benefits. Um, so again, if you're not on board with the collective, you, there are personal benefits that you will benefit from and quite immediately. Right. But then for many people, actually consumption, being able to purchase new things and the pleasure that they get from these things uh, that's what they perceive uh, that make them happy. So how do you replace this feeling of happiness for from purchasing stuff by actually not purchasing this stuff? Well, I guess I would say first off, like it's not gonna, I'm not gonna reach everybody, right? <laughs> um, there are certainly people who are going to continue to put their own purchasing needs and wants ahead of uh, what's best for the collective. Um, and, you know, that's, that is what it is. However, I suggest we all look beyond ourselves. We look beyond what's convenient. We've been so conditioned to put ourselves first and put our convenience above all else. But Convenience is destroying our planet. I mean, look at the fact that microplastics are found on every corner of the earth, inside human bodies. I mean, we really need to start asking ourselves, do we want our children and our grandchildren to have a planet to live on? <laughs> and if so, it's on us, not, not tomorrow, not today, but like yesterday. It was on us to start changing our me first behaviors so that our kids have a planet to grow up on. The other problem with this, with the 
decluttering or the minimalist lifestyle that I can imagine many people say, mothers, right, with kids and the uh, family to look after with their jobs, etc. So they're already very busy with all the stuff to, uh, to take care of. And then on top of this, if we add the thinking about the environment and the, uh, this minimalist lifestyle, etc., how they should reorganize their life, that can be quite a bit of a burden. I know you went through this, so maybe you can uh, share how these two coincide and how even the busiest moms can, uh, uh, can become uh, more minimalist. I, I can start with my own story, which is that prior to having my first daughter, I didn't think all that much about the planet. I didn't think about conscious consumerism. I just bought what I wanted when I wanted it. And I didn't think much more <laughs> about any of it. But when my first daughter was born, um, we were absolutely inundated with stuff. We have very loving and well-meaning uh, family and friends who just gifted and gifted and gifted. And I remember quite clearly my infant daughter had dozens, probably three dozen frilly pink dresses and they were all beautiful but for any mom listening they know that infants very rarely wear frilly dresses they wear zip up onesies and <laughs> so i remember just looking at all these dresses that were in her closet and i remember thinking to myself she's never going to wear any of these like and the toys that she had as she grew into a toddler she played with the toys here and there but the household items we had were infinitely more interesting. The pots, the pans, the the spoons, the anything that she could get her hands on that was quote unquote, like unavailable was infinitely more interesting. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm stressed out. I don't have much free time. Let's declutter the unessentials, the non-essentials. Let's declutter the frilly dresses. Let's declutter the toys that she's already done playing with or that she has no interest in. Let's work smarter, not harder, because when I have less stuff, I'm going to have less to put away, less to organize, less to wash, less to clean, less to iron, etc. So by getting rid of stuff, I anticipated gaining time. And that absolutely happened quite immediately. Having less stuff did reduce my mental load, did give me back precious free time, did give me a home that I didn't always need to, you know, spend every moment tidying up so that it could feel livable. And so for anybody listening who thinks to themselves, this is too hard, too daunting, um, being eco-friendly on top of being minimalist, like way too much, I'm going to continue to do what I've always done. I would say I definitely hear that um, parenting's really hard without adding eco-friendly minimalism onto it. I would just say, you know, start really, really, really small. Like start smaller than small. Take one eco-friendly action and try to incorporate it into your life. Don't do all the things all at once. Just do one thing and then do it over and over and over again until it's no longer work until it's just a part of the way you do things. For me, I think one of the things I started with was 
I don't know, hanging up my laundry. I used to use the dryer all the time. Well, hanging up my laundry <laughs> takes an extra five minutes, five minutes a day maybe, um, but it makes my clothes last longer. So I'm spending less money on clothes. It doesn't use electricity unnecessarily. So maybe you start there. Maybe you start hanging up your clothes and maybe it's going to take six months until hanging up your clothes feels like it's no longer work. It's just a habit. And then when that switch happens, when it's a habit and no longer work, that's when you add on another eco-friendly habit. So take it really slow. Be incremental about it. When we, when we try and do all the things all at once, that is a recipe for disaster, at least in my home. <laughs> I absolutely agree and love a lot your suggestion. And is there common easy wins or you would suggest that for some people some things works better for other people other things work better and everybody has to decide on their own uh, where to start i would say by and large everybody needs to <laughs> find their own place to start um, if you want the biggest bang for your buck though the biggest bang for your buck action that i had when i was starting out was starting composting so It's not hard. It sounds dirty. It sounds scary. It sounds time consuming. It's not. If you have a yard, it's as easy as bringing your food scraps out and dumping them in a pile. And when I started composting, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but again, it's virtually like foolproof. And you will see the amount of trash that you send to the landfill. So if you don't, if you send, if you put your trash or your food trash in the trash can, um, and you start composting it, you will see a drastic reduction in the amount of trash your home produces overnight. So if you want a huge bang for your buck, start composting. It's not hard. You can email me. I'll help you out. <laughs> uh, I agree. But then I think it depends where you live. So if you have a house, sure. indeed, that's a, a direct win. If you live in an apartment in Paris, well, <laughs> you have to stick to it. <laughs> Well, there are plenty of options for apartment dwellers as well, um, but I guess that would be another podcast for another day. <laughs> well, you can mention. Well, there's the Lomi composter now. It just sits on your counter. You stick your food scraps in, and the next morning you'll have soil, like a little bit. Um, there's Bokashi. There's vermicomposting. You can do that on your um, under your sink or on your... Fire escape. So there's there's definitely options in 2023 for most people to compost, even if you live in an apartment and don't have a yard. So what is the feedback from your community? Like what people share most often as the feedback? Maybe some main struggles or maybe some main wins or some successes, difficulties or whatever. I guess I would say... The main difficulty is just living in a way that's different from the masses. Sustainable minimalism is countercultural, right? It's everybody else is doing one thing and us sustainable minimalists are kind of swimming upstream. And so it's hard. I mean, the the effort that goes into living in a countercultural way is significant. Um, the eco-anxiety that comes with uh, understanding, truly bone-deep understanding the why behind our actions can be debilitating, especially for the parents among us. I mean, 
because um, we have children to think about. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the news headlines aren't good. Um, I would say in terms of other issues, I get a lot of questions about where can I find an eco-friendly this or where can I find a sustainable this? And, you know, we've made lots of, lots of innovations in terms of um, brands coming up with eco-friendly options to clothes, to bras, to shoes, to whatever we want. Um, but we're not there yet. We haven't hit the tipping point in which there is a better option for every single item we're looking for. And so sometimes the answer is, um, if you have to buy and there's no like best option, it's to buy a better option and keep it for the long haul. And how do you see the evolution over the last, uh, well, at least six years uh, of the society, of the people around you, of your community as well? Is there more understanding and um, a willingness to act uh, upon these climate change issues? Uh, yes. There's definitely more of a willingness, more of a desire. I would say that the news headlines are like we're at we're we're very close to a tipping point in which like the way we're doing things as a society like is not sustainable. And I do believe that there is going to come a time in which being unbelievably wasteful, being unintentional in our purchasing habits being unconscious as it relates to not just our waste of stuff, but also our waste of non-renewable resources of oil and gas, for instance. Like, I do think we're going to reach a tipping point where it's everybody understands that it's no longer sustainable and we do have to make sacrifices and we do have to change the way we live, again, if we want to continue living as a species on this planet. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is not sustainable. Have you computed the carbon footprint of your lifestyle? <laughs> I have. <laughs> uh, how much is it? For the family or for the person? And I, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but it's up there. I mean, I live in America. Just by living in America means my footprint's substantially higher than the uh, international average. So I don't have it off the top of my head. This minimalist lifestyle is, from what I see, is more about the consumption. So uh, reducing your consumption, uh, recycling. But what do you do else apart from this, from, from the waste management and the uh, less consumption? I drive an electric car. I have a vegetarian household. I mean, I'm tackling the major areas, the, the big four, I would say. Um, I'm not perfect. I'm absolutely doing my best, though. Okay. So, and what big four would you name? Consumption, food, transportation, and be your home heating and cooling practice. So, do you have a heat pump? Yes. Okay. I just installed one, actually. What were your own main challenges when you started this way? Uh, was it more fun or more, uh, was it uh, like there were also ups and downs? Uh, both as your uh, as a minimalist, but also as a, a podcaster and a, a minimalist influencer. Um, I would say largely it's been fun. There are lots of personal benefits I receive from 
trying to live with intention, trying to do better. I'm, again, I, I mean, I love to um, try and do better and then talk about <laughs> how it goes. Some things just don't, haven't worked, um, but some things do work. And I love that I have the podcast to uh, keep me con- accountable. I love that I have my listeners so that we can share our struggles and our successes as a community. We have a pretty active Facebook group in which we come together and we discuss what's working, what's not. We have a problem. Um, there's a great hive mind that uh, we've created. Um, so that, and I think that's important when we talk about living counterculturally, um, finding your tribe and um, sticking with them. Yeah, this is really amazing. That is such a support uh, uh, for what we are doing. And actually, uh, uh, from another episode, I discussed with the environmental psychologist and two actions that she she suggested as uh, helping the most with the climate anxiety was first the action and the second uh, finding the group of like-minded people. So uh, what you are doing is exactly the right thing. What would be your recommendations for the person who would like to uh, start uh, and encourage the sustainable minimalist lifestyle in their own communities? So who who basically is uh, walking your path. So what would would be your recommendations there? I would say step one is just to not be afraid to talk about the why behind what you're doing. I feel as though here in America, being eco-friendly or being an environmentalist is not shunned or looked down upon, but it's kind of not talked about. And I think it's really important to broach conversations with loved ones, with friends, with strangers even, about the why, about why why are you bringing bags to the supermarket? Like, why are you no longer going to Starbucks? Like what, like what is the reason? And be armed with, you know, some facts, be armed with some personal anecdotes and um, stay calm. I find that at least in my life, when I do broach conversations with skeptics, let's say, the conversation goes best when emotions stay out of it. (laughs) I hope that helps. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine in the society as divided on this topic as the U.S., uh, there might be a lot of emotions. Yes, um, but and 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 even though there is a lot of emotions on all sides, um, that doesn't mean that we should ignore having the conversations. We still have to have the conversations despite the emotionality of them. So that would be my first tip: like, don't be afraid to shy away from having conversations about important issues. Talk to other people because you might not create that community with that person. You might not change anybody's actions, but they are always watching you. And so you might be planting a seed that could very well sprout later. How much time does it take to you to maintain this community, to do the podcast, to do the blog? Has it become really like... um professional activity like uh, which takes a lot of time or is it still more like a hobby that you do on the side 
it's my job. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a job. I work full time. I do not make full time money from it. <laughs> but I always tell people I have a full time job that pays a part time salary. And that's basically accurate. Um, it's a lot of work. But again, I go back to what I said at the beginning, which was I started it as a po- as a passion project. And so I would still be doing this full-time, even if there was no um, monetary addition to the equation. So I love what I do. And um, that keeps me going, hopefully for the next five years. (laughs) (laughs) What gives you hope? Is it the support from the community? Is it the more actions that the the, the community takes and how people change? What gives you hope? It's absolutely my community or I shouldn't say my community, it's our community. I have learned so much from people who have different areas of expertise than me. Um, I have gained renewed hope knowing that, you know, through the sustainable minimalist community, I am connecting with people on the other side of the world who think and feel and act just like me. I have renewed hope knowing that there are people doing their little bits of good all over the globe. And that to me is so powerful. That makes me so hopeful for the future. And so your community or, uh, uh, in, in Facebook or Instagram, so it's not only and not mostly uh, the American people. So it's really all, uh, all over the world. The podcast mostly caters to listeners in the United States, but I have a big contingent of listeners in Australia, Canada, Britain as well. So, okay. Well, I get, I just got an email the other day from someone in Pakistan. So, oh. <laughs> uh, the podcast everywhere. <laughs> what are the uh, apps or websites that, well, apps is probably something easier that can people uh, that you would recommend people to use to know if a product is sustainable, if it's good for the health. Um, There's called the Yuka app. It's Y-U-K-A. That's a good one. I use the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep Database database for um, cleaning supplies and beauty products. That's another good one. I don't know if we need to like use an app to determine whether something's sustainable or not, though. I think once you get started, you you develop your critical thinking uh, skills, you you like flex that muscle. And so once you start, you um, are able to look at products through a a critical lens, you can look at it and see this word. Oh, it has the word clean on it. That's greenwashing. Or, oh, this says it's an eco-friendly product. It says that on the label, but it's packaged in plastic. That's greenwashing. Or, um, you know, you learn to look for third-party certifications because third-party certifications tend to generally say much more than the marketing words that are on a product. And so you develop your conscious consumer skills. There are apps for those of you starting out, but I would say instead of relying on an app to tell you whether something is uh, good or not, let's really develop our own self-sufficient muscle there. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if we can do it for everything. Like, for example, you need a pair of jeans and, uh, well, because you don't have any anymore. So, and how do you choose one? How your muscles would help you here? Oh, well, the great thing is there's this little thing called e-commerce, right? And you go to the website, <laughs> you look at the materials, you look at the company, you see if this brand has a sustainability mission. You see if when you really dig deep into it, the company actually cares about the planet or just puts in like a word here or there to, you know, hopefully... I don't not be way behind the wave. I mean, most brand, most brands these days have something to say on sustainability. Do they say a little bit or do they say a lot? That right there is a way that you can flex your own muscle. If they say a little bit, they're just trying to not be left behind. Last question is, what are your two most inspiring books that you would like to recommend? Well, I just interviewed the authors of a book called The Big Fix on my podcast, The Big Fix. The authors were Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. That was a deep dive into all of us taking our actions that we're doing in our own home and taking those actions out into our communities. So what should we be doing? What should we be advocating for? in our communities. That was a good one. A great book for conscious consumption is called Slightly Greener. It's by Tanya Harris. It is about, you know, the products we tend to buy, our home cleaning products, our beauty products, our foods. Um, so the stuff that we just buy, um, what are some problems with them, human health problems? Why should we give them a second look before we just allow them into our home because we always have. So that would be my second one. It's called Slightly Greener. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was so fun. I wish you so much success on your own podcast and please keep in touch. I enjoyed a lot this beautiful conversation with Stephanie and it made me think. Though I have never thought about the minimalism concept consciously, it has been somewhat a part of my life since childhood. In the Soviet Union, where I was born, people barely had necessary stuff without talking of overconsumption. Nevertheless, my mom did regular raids at home and got rid of unnecessary things. Old toys, unworn clothes, broken appliances. And interestingly, always in the most sustainable way, very few things went to the trash bin. I must admit, my father and I were rather guilty of the opposite. We always thought, hmm, who knows, we may need it in the future, so let's just keep it. Minimalism lifestyle sounds stringent and difficult, and it actually is. The difficulty lies in human psychology of relationship to things, but also in the way our society has shaped up to now. But it does have important benefits certainly for the planet, but also for people. Pure things do let us enjoy them more and create our own stories with them. Pure things liberate our time and help us focus more on what matters, non-material things and experience. And it is those which make us ultimately much happier in life. Finally, letting all things go or decluttering, free space, 
but also brings new energy and changes as it allows us to leave the past behind and not dragging it in our cupboards. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it gave you inspiration to declutter your closet or maybe it motivated you to think twice before you decide to buy something new. Or if you want to know more about sustainable minimalism, I highly recommend to subscribe to Stephanie's podcast and join her community. And as always, I am happy to hear from you if you have any questions or suggestions. You can write me at sccrowpodcast in one word at gmail.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. Bye bye.